0: you have a Bible, please be right there where we are at in Luke chapter 22. We're actually going to be in a variety of places this morning. We're also going to be uh, in Exodus chapter 12 as we're connecting with the Passover this week, and we'll also be uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 a little bit later on. But whether you are an art aficionado or not, at least in Western culture, there are a couple of paintings that are just recognizable instantly for everybody, uh, again, in Western civilization. Uh, The two most famous ones, according to a variety of sources, are both painted by Leonardo da Vinci, and the first one is this. Now, what is that? Right, everybody's going to know that, everybody's going to recognize it's the Mona Lisa. The second, again, according to a variety of sources, also painted by Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, is this. Now, what is that? The Last Supper. Now, Da Vinci gets a couple of things wrong here, right? The disciples weren't all a bunch of white people. In fact, probably none of them were. And then none of them had long, flowing, fem, you know, feminine, feathered-out hair. Uh, they were normal Galileans. They didn't look like this. But still, this painting can serve us in a lot of ways, particularly as we're getting into what we're going to talk about this morning, because... The Last Supper, like, what what were they doing? What were they gathered to, to eat? The Passover. They had gathered to eat the Passover. That's what I just read out of Luke chapter 22. That's why they had come together. And we talked a lot about the Passover last week. But what is significant about, in particular, this photo and Luke 22, this painting, is the Last Supper... Like, it is the last supper ever of Passover from God's eyes. Like, it was the last one. There's to be no more Passover after this from God's eyes. It had found its fulfillment in Christ. And in that moment, the Last Supper is also the first supper, the first celebration ever of the Lord's Supper, or communion, or the Eucharist, depending upon your tradition. That's the first time Jesus ended Passover and he began the Lord's Supper. And so in a lot of ways, what we call the Last Supper is also the First Supper. It's the Last Supper of Passover. It's the First Supper of the Lord's Supper. And so this morning, I want to try to just kind of help explain all this to us, because in our exposition through Exodus, we've gotten to the Passover. And John preached on that last week and explained all that the Passover was about. But the Passover finds its fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. And so I want to take this week to just kind of call time out from Exodus and talk about the Lord's Supper since Passover points so clearly to it. And just as John did last week when he explained like, what all the Passover signifies, this week I want to explain what all Lord's Supper signifies. And so we're going to look at how the Passover was superseded by the Lord's Supper, and then what all it looks like. And so just, let me put it like this, if you've ever wondered why Christians don't celebrate the Passover anymore, if you've ever wondered why Christians regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper, and, and who it is that's to take the Lord's Supper, and who it is that's not to take the Lord's Supper, and all those sorts of things, what it's all about, well hopefully today will be helpful to you. and just. Renew afresh or stir up afresh our affections for the grace and mercy and kindness that Jesus has shown us. The gift of forgiveness and eternal life through his life and death and resurrection. And so with all that said, let's just get into it. And in your resources, on your sermon guide, I always put a couple of books that are good. This one, I want to highlight one. It's called Understanding the Word Supper by Bobby Jameson. I put it in your resources Uh, And I'm going to be borrowing from this because he does such a good job of just putting the cookies on the lowest shelf, which is good for me. And so I'm going to borrow from this heavily. If you want a more in-depth understanding of what we're talking about this morning, I recommend grab that. It's a quick read. You can read through that. And um, so want to just highlight that, but let's get going. Luke chapter 22. So we read kind of the beginning uh, there where Jesus says, I'm going to celebrate the Passover, go get it ready. They get there, everything's ready. And so let's pick it up now in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood But the whole, behold the hand of him who betrays me is but behold the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table For the son of man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed And so in this moment, like what we're talking about, is particularly verses 17 through uh, 20, this is that moment where we see Passover morph over into the Lord's Supper. It's where we see Jesus remake it. The phasing out of Passover, the old covenant, the phasing in of the Lord's Supper, the new covenant. And you can even see this through some of the language about the cup and the bread. And so like, look closely, look at verse 17, if you have a Bible out, Look at verse 17. If you don't have a Bible out, pull it up on an app or something if you have that. Do not pull it up and start playing like, you know, um, some game or whatever. But pull it up and, and look at it. But verse 17, you'll see a cup. And he took a cup, right? Then verse 19, we see that he takes bread. And then verse 20, we see that he takes another cup. And so those of you with any background in Christianity at all, or, or have seen the word supper, participated in the word supper, you know that there, that there is bread and there is a cup, but there's not bread in two cups. And so why are there two cups here? Cup, bread, cup. What, what, what's going on there? Well, again, what were they originally gathered to do? They are gathered to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus, in this moment, is remaking it. And so the cup in verse 17 is the last cup of Passover, like in God's eyes, ever. Like it finds its fulfillment. And then beginning in verse 19, Jesus does something that had never, ever been done in the history of celebrating Passover. He suddenly takes the bread and holds it up and says, See, this bread... It represents my body that's going to be sacrificed for you. Now, 1,400 years of celebrating the Passover. No one has ever done this. And so starting in verse 19, Jesus is doing something new. And the disciples are witnessing Him remaking the Old Covenant ceremony, supper of Passover, and remaking moving that over into the New Covenant meal of the Lord's Supper. And so that's the first thing I want you to write down in your notes this morning. So if you're taking notes, your sermon guide, number one, the Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of and remaking of Passover. The Lord's Supper, number one in your notes, the Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of and a remaking of Passover. Passover. Because think about Passover, like what was Passover all about? We talked about this last week, but it was part of the 10th plague, right? The 10th plague, there's 10 plagues, and God is asking Pharaoh, telling Pharaoh, let my people go, he's not, so he's increasing these plagues. The 10th plague is the worst one, the most heartbreaking one of all, and it's a plague of destruction and death of the firstborn son of everyone in the land of Egypt, but he gives a way out of that because on the night before this happened, God told his people to have a particular supper where they sacrificed and they ate a lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their home. And when the Lord came through to kill the firstborn, He would see the blood of the lamb and He would see that there had been a substitute death and He would pass over that home. And so already we should start to see how this is pointing down the road towards Jesus, the ultimate substitute death For our sins. And so God commanded the people, therefore, to celebrate this Passover meal as a yearly, so it's a regularly repeated thing, as a yearly memorial of his deliverance to them. All right, that's one thing that it was. And so, looking at Exodus 12, part of what uh, Elder Jeff read just a moment ago, verse 25 says this. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads. And worship. So that's what the Passover is, but then God also gives some rules defining how you're to do it, how you're to eat it, who can have it and who can't. And so look at verse 43 there of chapter 12 still. And the word said to Moses and Aaron, "This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it." But every slave and slavery is very different than there is not anything like chattel slavery in America at all. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And so I want you to note here, with all these rules, not only is the Passover a reflection upon and a remembrance, a memorial to what, G- to what God did in rescuing His people from Egypt, it also is a marking off of, a defining of, who God's people actually are. It, it marks them off. My people are those people who I rescued from Egypt and they received the Passover. And if you're not part of my people, you're not to take the Passover. Only my people are to take the Passover. And if you want to be, if you want to take the Passover, then what do you need to do? Well, first you need to become part of my people. How do you become part of my people? By faith in the one true God and then as a sign of that, circumcision. Now, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, I want us to begin starting to see some of these parallels, though, with the Lord's Supper. Because just as the Passover marked off the nation of Israel, so the Lord's Supper marks off who makes up the church. And just as foreigners or non-believers were not to eat the Passover, so non-believers are not to eat the Lord's Supper. If a non-believer wants to eat the Lord's Supper, what does he need to do? He first needs to become a believer. How do you become a believer? By faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as a sign of that, it's not circumc- circumcision anymore, it's baptism. And so quoting that book I re- talked about a minute ago, Bobby Jameson here, in the Exodus, God saved a people for him. Just with these parallels. He's going to talk about... Um, Passover, and then he's going to talk about Lord's Supper, and he's going to use the exact same language. So, listen to this. In the Exodus Passover, God saved a people for himself through the blood of a sacrifice. He freed them from slavery and made them his own. And on the night before the great act of deliverance, he gave them a meal to celebrate ever after. This meal defined the people. They all celebrated it, and no one else could. By retelling the story of their salvation, this meal brought God's past act of deliverance into the present. And it told every Israelite that they had been a slave and that their God is a God who rescues. That's Passover. And then in a similar but even greater way, on the cross, God saved a people for Himself through the blood of Jesus' sacrifice. He freed them from sin and made them His own. And on the night before the great act of deliverance, Jesus gave them a meal to celebrate ever after. This meal defines God's new people in Christ. They all celebrate it, and no one else should. By retelling the story of our salvation, this meal brings Christ brings God's past action of deliverance into the present. And it tells every Christian that we were lost in sin and that our Lord Jesus is the God who rescues. And so do you see these connections here? Do you see these parallels that are happening here? The Passover and the Word Supper are both things that are done in remembrance of the Lord. Do this in remembrance of me. Like those of you who grew up in an old school Baptist church and had the table at the front and it said, it, you know, do this in remembrance of me. Both of them are to be like that. Both of them are in remembrance of the Lord and both of them mark off like who it is that makes up God's people. Passover does that. The Lord's Supper does that. This is, this is how they relate. And so what's happening then again in Luke 22, the painting that da Vinci did, is that Jesus is remaking Passover into a new supper, into the Lord's Supper. Not to remember the Lamb's blood on the doors, but to remember the Lamb of God's blood on the cross because the Passover finds its fulfillment in the cross. Everything that it pointed to, everything that it foreshadowed, finds its fulfillment In the cross, sin has been dealt with finally and fully at the cross, the ultimate sacrifice. There's no longer any sacrifices needed. This is the book of Hebrews. And so, number one, again, in your notes, the Lord's Supper is a fulfillment of and a remaking of Passover. All right? And so so we kind of got that. But what else? All right, so we understand the connection now, but if we're going like, to learn about the Lord's Supper, what it is, who can take it, who can't, what it means, what it signifies, what, what is that all about? All right, and so number two in your notes, and this one's kind of long, so I'll say it a couple of times. Number two, the Lord's Supper is a multifaceted, the Lord's Supper is a multifaceted spiritual memorial to be regularly repeated. Just like the Passover, it was regularly repeated. The Lord's supper is to be regularly repeated. Right? It's a multifaceted spiritual memorial to be regularly repeated. And so when you think about facets, like I can't help but think about uh, when you know, I was buying a ring for Sarah. And those of you who maybe have gotten married and bought uh, your wife a ring, or those of you who, you know, thought about getting married and you bought a ring and you returned it because you changed your mind, or whatever, uh, those of you who maybe will get married someday, I'm going to give you some help. When you are looking at a diamond, four C's, four C's you want to keep in mind. Color, cut, clarity, and carrot. Those, that's color, cut, clarity, and carrot. You learn all about those things. But until you start looking at a diamond and really learning about it, you I had no idea. It's just like, i got to buy this expensive thing. I don't know why, but it's what I've got to do. But once you like, start looking at them and get a uh, magnifying glass and really start looking inside at, uh, of them, you begin to see how many different facets there are inside and how it looks so different from different angles. And how just, you know, from this way, oh, wow, I see this. And from this way, oh, wow, I see this. And the word suppers the exact same way. There are so many different facets that you can find about what it means, what it represents, what its purpose is. And they're found all over the New Testament. But we can find a bunch of them if we just condense ourselves to 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, we can see five of these facets. And that's what your little subpoints are. Five facets of the Lord's Supper, five purposes of the Lord's Supper. And so let me read 1 Corinthians like 11 in its entirety and then we'll go back and make our way through it slowly and we'll also hit 1 Corinthians a couple verses out of 1 Corinthians 10 as well. But 1 Corinthians 11, I'll start in verse 17 and it begins with Paul kind of chastising and getting on the church at Corinth for observing the Lord's Supper wrongly. They're doing it all individualistically and he's like, uh-uh, that's not what it's about. So verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one's just going ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And so the first facet that I want us to notice here, straight out of this section of Scripture, is that the word supper is, letter A, an ordinance of the church. It is an ordinance of of the church that means it belongs to the church it is a church's act not an individual's act it is about the church the ekklesia in greek literally assembly it's when you are assembled and so this is why paul was getting on them for treating it in such an individualistic way you're not thinking about people you're just eating your stuff and you're drinking your stuff no 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 it's about when we come together And so that's why he says repeatedly, like verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together. Verse 34, when you gather together. And so clearly the call here is for the church to do this. The Word Supper wasn't something for individuals or families or small groups. It was something the whole church did together. That's why it's called an ordinance of the church. Now, ordinance, that's a big word. What's ordinance? Well, it's kind of like two things. That, an ordinance is something that marks off the church. It's an activity. And there are two of them. The church has two ordinances. First one's the Lord's Supper. We just talked about that. The second one, well, I mean, in order, it would actually be reversed. The first one is baptism. That's, but that's the other one. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances. And they go hand in hand. And so let me just lay this out. Like when you think about baptism, you can think about baptism as like the swearing in, it's like the taking the oath of office. That's what baptism is. And so God, you know, invisibly saves people by his grace and thus makes them a member of his universal church. But baptism provides like a swearing in ceremony, both the citizens of his kingdom as well as the nations. A visible public swearing-in ceremony. That's what baptism is. It is a public profession of faith on the front door as entrance into the church. Entrance into membership. And so, if baptism is the initiating oath sign of a local church, the Lord's Supper is the renewing oath sign of the local church. And so when baptism... Everybody look up here so I can use my hands, which I use anyhow all the time, but I'm going to use them. In baptism, you have one being connected to the many, right? But in the word supper, you have the many being reminded that we are one body. We're going to see this expressly in 1 Corinthians 10 in just a second. And so the Lord's Supper then isn't a place for a private, closed-eyed, mystical encounter with God. It's to be celebrated by the church, as a church, and it entails a responsibility for the church. And so Jameson again, he says, it is, the Lord's Supper is how we personally re-ratify our commitment to Christ and this people. As well as how we corporately ensure that the church keeps a clear fence around itself. And so somebody says, Joe, that sounds very exclusionary, a fence around the church. Are you saying that there should be a distinction between the church and the world? Yes, I am. Absolutely I am. Like we know this as it relates to our our, our actions how we are to live the church should not look like the world though so often we do for i mean we can look at it up like out there church oh my gosh i'm embarrassed by what's going on but also if you just look at yourself oh my gosh i'm embarrassed so often we look like the world we're not to there's to be a distinction but then the lord also has given us these two ordinances that are to be a distinction They are visible markers. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They mark off who it is that defines a local church. And so as one God put it, the ordinances make it possible to point to something and say, church, that's a church. That's what baptism and the Lord's Supper does. Rather than pointing to a bunch of somethings and saying, Christians. There's a difference. And so this is why, like, because it's an ordinance of the church. This is why I don't do the Lord's Supper uh, at weddings. It's why I don't do it at community group. It's also why we now always cut the live stream before we partake of the Lord's Supper, because it's something to be done together when we gather together. Now, we make a couple of exceptions for this. People who are homebound, we will take the Lord's Supper to them, and we do. During COVID, people who have been rendered virtually homebound because of, uh, you know, be very dangerous for them, we have tried to take the Lord's supper to them and have done so several times. But it's not to just you know be taken at home when you're perfectly healthy just because you prefer sitting in your PJs rather than getting up and coming. That's not how you approach the Lord's table. And so we cut the live stream and we do it when people are gathered together. And listen, people who interpret this a little different, they do it at weddings. And I've been part of that. And they do it here, they do it there. Listen, I'm not saying that they're in sin. I just think they're wrong. And I mean, they're not in sin. They just think that they kind of missed the point. We can differ on that. This is not a closed-handed, like, you know, doctrinal, oh my gosh, you're like, that's not that. I just think missed the point a little bit. And they think I do. And that's okay. But the word supper belongs to the church. It is for when we come together. It is an ordinance of the church. And so that's letter A. The word supper is an ordinance of the church. Letter B. The word supper is an expression of unity in a church. The word supper is an expression of unity. And so I said I was going to reference chapter 10. Well, here we are. Time to reference chapter 10. So turn to the left, one page. One page. If your Bible's like mine, maybe it's not. Chapter 10, verse 16. We're going to see Paul highlight a local church's unity like in the Lord's Supper. That's where it's shown. It's chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many, our one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And so what Paul is saying is that the Lord's Supper, like that actual action, what makes the many of us, it, it, like it is what makes the many of us into one body. The Lord's Supper does that. That as we reflect on what Christ has done for us, we have vertical communion with Him, vertical fellowship with Him, but then that also goes out and it expresses itself horizontally as the church and is thus something we do. That's again, that's why there's a we are to be gathered together. It's not individual, it's something we do. And so look at all the word look at all the we words in chapter ten, verse sixteen again. The cup of blessing that we bless. All right, this is corporate. This is an individual. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So we participate in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, not you on your own, not me, we do this. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And so, the we here is so crucial. It's the church's act, not an individual. And so, it's not as if we're just, you know, a couple dozen people in here all having an encounter with Jesus all on our own, all individualized. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. It, we are doing this together as a mark of our unity together. Yes, we approach the table as individuals, but we also approach the table as a church. When we come together, we do these things because there is one bread. We, who are many, are one body for all this share that one bread. Our unity is found in the words "supper," because uh, we're saying it the church's one foundation is Jesus. It's not ethnicity or socioeconomic class or left-wing politics, right-wing politics, who you voted for for president. That's not our unity. Our unity is in Christ, period dot it's not in having a bunch of things in common it's having the most important thing in common christ that's our unity and the word supper is an opportunity for us to make that visible because there is one bread we who are many are one body that is our unity and so communion with christ begets communion with each other and that brings us to the third facet and this is probably the one that most of us know. It is a symbolic remembrance of Christ's life and death. The Word Supper, letter C, is a symbolic remembrance of Christ's life and death. Still there in First Corinthians 11. Look at verse 23. Talking about a symbolic remembrance of Christ's life and death. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, That the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same way, also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of Me. And so all Paul has done here is quoted exactly what we read earlier in Luke chapter 22. Where Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Now, I want to go through that phrase for just a minute. This is my body. When Jesus says that, that is symbolic. He is not saying that the bread, the little wafer that's like styrofoam, almost cotton candy, except tastes horrible and melts in your mouth, that's in these little packets. He's not saying that literally becomes like the body of Jesus. All right? It's not transubstantiation that the Catholics believe in where they ring a bell and it morphs into the body, the flesh of Jesus. We don't believe that. It's symbolic. Just like when Jesus said, uh, I am the door. He's not saying like, I'm I'm a metal door. Well, they didn't have metal then. I'm a wooden door. He's not saying I am a It's symbolism. Same thing here. This is my body. But then, more importantly, which is for you. That is, given. See, Jesus isn't a martyr who is helpless at the cross and can't do anything about it. He can call down, I mean, thousands of angels. He could just say, uh, you know, you uh, fire. I mean, he, he can do this in a moment. He's not a helpless victim. He is willingly laying His life down He's not a martyr. I mean, just as well, they're getting ready to celebrate this and, and, and celebrate the Passover, and He says, hey, go into town, you're going to find this guy, and He's going to tell you, and you go up there, and, you're going to, and everything's ready. Well, so throughout all history, God has been orchestrating every moving thing until this moment when everything's ready. And Jesus will give His life in our place for our sins. He gives it. It's not taken. He gives it. I mean, this had been prophesied for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I'll give you one example out of Isaiah. Chapter 53. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote these words. Surely He has borne... He wrote them in the past tense even. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed... For our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with His wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And so here's, like, He did this for, for you and for you. And for you, 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 and for me. My chastisements, my iniquities laid on Jesus. He was pierced. He was crushed. This is the gospel. Jesus got what we deserve. So we could get what he deserves. He lived perfectly. We're sinful. He gives us His perfect righteousness. He takes our sinfulness. There's a transaction that happens. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And this is what the cup of the new covenant is all about. It was promised Old Testament. It has found inauguration and and, and has come into fulfillment in the New Testament. I mean, I said it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Let me give you another one. Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Again, this is about 800 years before Jesus. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's a new covenant. This is what the Lord's Supper is, and this is our hope. And so it's not just remembering His life and death, it's remembering that God has made a covenant with His people. He's made a covenant with us. And so when we eat the bread and drink of the cup, we are basically saying, I eat this bread and I drink this cup because of what the Lord did for me when He saved me from my sin." Which is why, again, someone who's not yet a believer isn't to take it. Because they can't declare that. When they become a believer, they can declare that. And so they take of it. But before that, they're not to take it because they can't make that declaration. And so, friends, Christ's body has been broken. And His blood has been poured out again for you. This is good news. And and I can't explain it except to say we really have no idea how much God loves us. No idea. Let's keep going. So, the multifaceted memorial is an ordinance of the church, it's an expression of our unity. It's a symbolic remembrance of Christ's life and death. And then fourthly, and I'm going to use a big word, it's an eschatological appetizer. It's an eschatological appetizer. Eschatological eschatology is the study of end times. So this is a looking forward to the... It is an appetizer for when Christ returns. It's a foretaste of the future. And so still there in 1 Corinthians 11, look now at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, listen, until He comes. Until He comes. And so every time we partake, we are doing this. We're proclaiming His, his life and His death, and we're proclaiming His resurrection and return. Because just as, I mean, think about it. The Passover find, found its fulfillment in the Lord's Supper, so the Lord's Supper is going to find its fulfillment in another supper. What supper is that? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ returns. New heavens, new earth, no more death, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, everything made wrong, made right. Like Samwise Gamge said, all the sad things come untrue, And so even as the word supper looks back upon what Christ has done, and we remember that, it also looks forward to what Christ is going to do, that He's going to return and make all things new. And then the final facet I'm going to show you this morning... Is that while the Word Supper is inherently a church ordinance where we have communion with Christ and communion with one another, like I said a little bit earlier, we do approach the table as individuals. And so, letter five, the Word Supper is an opportunity for self reflection. Not just an opportunity, it's a calling, it's an invitation, it's a command for self reflection. And so just continuing on in 1 Corinthians 11, we just did 26, now let's do 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so what's that? how, how can we make sure we don't approach it in an unworthy manner? Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body like discerning yourself self-reflection eats and drinks judgment on himself and so as you approach the table and we do you know we we do have to think through things we have to discern ourselves how you know think through some things I think it's really helpful to, to dwell on four things. I would jot these down and then keep them as, you know, something as we approach the Lord's supper. All right, just I mean, we've talked about some of them, but just four things to contemplate every single month. We usually take it here at Providence. We choose to do it like the first Sunday of the month usually. We're doing it the second Sunday this month because I knew I was talking about the Lord's Supper this week. And it would be weird to talk about the Lord's Supper and not take the Lord's Supper. So we delayed it a week. But four things to contemplate as you approach the table. Every single time. The first one is to contemplate the, the, the price that Jesus has paid. Contemplate the cross and the sacrifice Jesus paid for you. As you approach the table, you think about that. It is the body and the bloods represented. Contemplate the cross and the sacrifice Jesus paid for you. Second, contemplate your brothers and sisters that are around you. The meal is a mark of our unity as a church. It's the many being made one, 1 Corinthians 10. And so give thanks to God for saving all these people around you. That even as you gained Christ as your Savior, you have gained one another as a family. That's why membership's important. Third, contemplate the future promises of Christ. Again, it is an eschatological appetizer there's coming a day when Christ returns and all that we long for all that we hope for comes healing freedom from sin and death fully like we already have it fully arrives when Jesus returns the already not yet is 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 gone it's, all, it's just we have it So contemplate the future promises of Christ. And then fourthly, obviously, contemplate yourself. Like examine yourself. Like your sin. Not someone else's. Your sin. Look at your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. And own your sin. And confess your sin. Don't blame shift it away. Don't justify it away. Own it. I did this. I grieved the Holy Spirit in this way. I sinned against my Lord. I did this. Repent of it. Mourn over it. I did this. But don't stay there. Then let your mourning be turned into rejoicing as you remember the fact that this is the whole reason Jesus came to forgive us. And so the word supper isn't something to lay guilt upon you, it's something reminding you your guilt has been removed. And so even as we contemplate it slowly and we mourn that like my sin caused Jesus to have to die in my place, and I mourn over that. I rejoice that He, he did that. He willingly gave it. And he's given me forgiveness and freedom of sin and guilt and shame. It's too good to be true. So we have to just keep reminding ourselves over and over and over. And now, go and sin no more. This is, the good, this is what the Lord's Supper is all about, guys. It's all about reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done and recognizing our unity together, marking us off as the people of God. It points us to Christ. Jesus bled so we don't have to. Jesus is our substitute. We deserve to be punished for our sin. Jesus willingly chose to lay down His life to do it for us. He is the true and better Passover lamb. Passover points to the Lord's Supper. All that it was looking forward to has found its fulfillment in Jesus. That's what it's all about. And so now may we live our lives perpetually like the old table in remembrance of Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Freely bestowed Ephesians 1 lavished upon us like a waterfall that never runs dry, just dumping millions of gallons per second. That's like Your grace on us. Lord, help me, help us to know that. To believe that. I'm so prone. I guess we probably are all so prone to look at you as maybe miserly with your grace. You are not miserly. You are gracious. You are abounding in steadfast love. as we've talked about even in our study of Exodus thus far, there's never a time in Scripture where it talks about your love had to be awakened. That's only as it relates to your wrath had to be awakened. Your anger had to be awakened. Your love is constant. You are rich in mercy, Ephesians 2.4. Sink this deep into our hearts that we might live in joyous humility. Joy because we've been forgiven. Humility because we didn't do it. We didn't earn it. And so we can't walk with the swagger. We're humble like our Lord Jesus. We are poor in spirit. And therefore we are blessed. Make this true in our own lives as a reflection, as a response to your saving grace. We ask this in Jesus' name, our wonderful, merciful Savior. Amen.